You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. There is a lot of talk about freedom in our day and age. You know, from the right, there's freedom of speech, freedom of religion, personal freedoms, the land of the free, freedom to own guns, freedom of the marketplace, just a lot of talk about freedom. And from the left, there is freedom of expression, freedom in body autonomy, freedom for people who have been suppressed or oppressed for centuries in our country, freedom to marry who I want, freedom to choose my gender. There's just a lot of talk about freedom. And we live in a country that is allegedly founded on the ideas and in some ways the ideals of freedom, even if they have not been applied equitably across all time to all people. And Patrick Deneen wrote a book called Why Liberalism Failed. And he diagnoses the left and the right and says the idea of America is built on the radical redefinition of freedom that he argues goes back to the Enlightenment. And he said there was a shift somewhere along the way from freedom as the power to pursue what is good and to do what is good to permission to define the good for yourself. And he argues that the right aims it at the market and the environment. So we can do, you know, whatever we want with the trees and the oceans and the economy. So keep your laws off of our stocks, keep your taxes to yourself, exploit the land. Let us do whatever we want with the earth and our 401ks. Just leave us alone. And then he argues that the left has the same mindset, just aimed at different things. Gender, sexuality, religion, family norms, ethics, sort of the internal world of the self. Same sort of thought, we can do whatever we want with these things, just leave us alone. And my point is not to comment on all of those issues, but rather to observe that they both stem from the same belief, that I know what freedom is. That I know what freedom is. Ironically, most ancient church mothers and fathers defined freedom radically differently than how we define freedom. They would define freedom as being detached from our material needs and our natural desires. In fact, freedom was about the mastery of these deep natural urges in favor of self-control and restraint and virtue. And in many ways, how we define freedom in America to buy whatever we want and to sleep with whoever we desire and to hoard whatever we can and to overindulge in food and drink and in media consumption and binging Netflix and money making, it it isn't actually freedom. Defining freedom as doing whatever you want to do in whatever category you want to pick is actually the scripture's definition of slavery. Freedom isn't opposed to restriction. It's just about picking the right restraints to forge us into people who are actually free. So think about marriage, right? The restraint, the choice to marry one person is an automatic restraint to go and marry someone else. You take vows for better or worse and sickness and health for richer or for poor. There is restraint in those things. So no matter if they are paralyzed from the neck down in a car accident, I am attached to them. And in the restraint, there is great freedom. You saying yes to one thing is indeed you saying no to many other things. Same can be said for taking a job, right? Saying yes to a job and its standards and its ethics and its workplace practices is saying no to a thousand other jobs and can find you to a schedule and a standard and a workplace and many other things. 
Freedom is the capacity to both want and pursue the good that is defined by Jesus and at many points that involves restraint. And there is a small but important and often neglected way of living that encourages restraint in the way of Jesus. And that way of living is fasting. So we are entering into the next season of our church talking about and practicing fasting. And I imagine most people within the sound of my voice do not have a regular history of fasting. I would argue it's probably the most underpracticed spiritual discipline and aspect of following Jesus in the American church today. And that is not to harp on the church. That's just stating an obvious reality. Think about it. We, we love food. We have industry after industry after industry talking about and pitching food. I mean, we have the food is fuel movement. The idea that food is merely nutrients for your body. It's just gasoline to pour onto the flame that is your growing muscles. And so you eat and you work out and you diet and food helps fuel the flame that is your body. We have the food is fashion movement. We love food so much that we take pictures of it. I mean, look at this. This is Cooking for Peanuts Instagram account, and I will peruse her account every couple of months because look at it. I mean, you, you come for the recipes, but you stay for the pics because this is it's just amazing to see. Or this one, Amazing Grazen, because if you're going to have a food account, it best be full of Christian puns. But who wants to eat that when it looks so good uneaten? We have the food as festive movements. We gather around food for celebrations and feasting. There is no real party that you've ever attended where food is not some central component to the festivities. It's what makes gathering fun. We have the food is fad movement. Dieting can be great, but let's be honest, it is a financially lucrative industry. Weight watchers, plant-based, keto, Whole30, vegetarian, pescatarian, flexitarian, Mediterranean, Dash, dietary approaches to stop hypertension. The marketing for these is crazy, and it's because we are strangely and simultaneously one of the most unhealthy nations in the entire world and obsessed with health. We also have the food as film movement. So in 1993, we saw the inception of the Food Network, a 24-7 TV channel based entirely on the preparation and presentation of food. And for hours on end, you would just watch people cook food. What a weird luxury. And since then, there are cooking shows and competitions and reality TV stars that hover over the concept of food. And we'll get to more of this in a few weeks, but there is an entire film world focused on food documentaries that dismantle how a lot of our food gets made specifically as it relates to factory farms and the mass capitalistic production at the expense of God's creation. All in all, our lives are consumed with food. And the challenge is that food is good. Food is a gift. Food is a need. We all must eat and we all are invited to actually enjoy food. And I am not here to harp on the great gift of food. I love food probably more than most of you in this room. I love sweets. I love gourmet food. I love terrible food. I will eat just about anything that you put in front of me. And over the past few months, I have been personally confronted and convicted for my desire and love of food. It is a problem in my life. And so this teaching series is just as much for me as it is for anyone else. 
And what I want to do today is just a brief flyover of the Bible as it relates to food and fasting. Some of the stories around it and its indulging, but also the restraint from food and what it means for us in 2022. So we spent the fall talking about feasting, a major theme throughout the scriptures that God has invited us into. But just as much as feasting is a theme, so too is fasting. So we start where we always start in the beginning. There is an old adage that says the quickest way to a man's heart is through his stomach, and we can surmise that Satan knew that well as the very first sin Adam and Eve committed in the garden is eating food. Now, the temptation was not that food was evil, but that when Eve saw that the fruit was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirous to make one wise, the desire for it and ultimately the trust of its promise over the trust of God's promises ultimately drowns out the voice of God in the garden. And there is a strong primal appeal to the stomach, and millennia later we are still wrestling with it. Flip over a few pages, you get Noah, who walked with God, who fell into a similar trap. It says in Genesis 9, he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine, and became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tents. Isaac, one of the patriarchs of the faith, favored Esau over Jacob for no other reason than the fact that his elder son supplied his father's table with the food that he liked. And then Esau, in turn, sells his birthright for a single meal. And because of this forfeits the blessing of the firstborn that he was bound to receive. God's people in the wilderness grumble over what? Food. Literally, they would rather be in chains under the empire of Egypt because there they could eat fish and meat. And even in the sanctuary, the temple, the lust for food creeps in. God asks the priest Eli, why then do you scorn my sacrifices and offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of offering of my, of every offering of my people Israel? We can, we should feast to the glory of God, but even feasting can be an idol. Again, it's not that food is inherently evil. In fact, food is inherently good. It's blessed by God even. When we pray, we don't have to bless the food. The food is already blessed. It was created by God. It is not part of the fall. We pray to give thanks for God's good provision and in giving us food, not that he would somehow bless it and make it good for us. But throughout the scripture, one of the responses people are invited into when they encounter God is to withhold food from themselves. So look at these examples in Exodus we see Moses receive the covenant from God on Mount Horeb. And it says, Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights without eating bread or drinking water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the Ten Commandments. There is something about drawing near to God that causes us to deny some of our most basic instincts. The response from Moses when God brings him up on the mountain is to go without food. Why? Because it is a holy, sacred moment. David, arguably the greatest king throughout the history of Israel, multiple times throughout the story, fasted. One example is this. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. 
He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. And the elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. Fasting is a natural response to grief. It is a natural response to a moment of pain and suffering. It is a pleading with God, not merely with your mind, but with your body. So consider a funeral for a moment, right? When someone dies, what is the one thing that people do over and above everything else? Will they bring you greasy, oversized casseroles? I'm sure with good intentions. But why? (laughs) Because you don't have time to cook. You're stressed out. You're grieving. People's natural response is to do this because they believe it provides comfort. And the irony is that when we're grieving, we actually lose our appetite. And I don't know the biology and all the reasoning behind it, but when your body is in stress, and most of the time our bodies associate grieving a loved one as a stressful event, you are in a fight or flight mode, which means your digestive system shuts down so it can save energy to fight or run. And in grief, the description we find in the life of David is to fast, a response to a grievous moment of darkness and death rearing its head again. Now listen to the prophet Jeremiah relaying the message of God to his people. It says, when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you. Now, we have chalked up the idea to do something with, quote, all your heart to something of a strange catchphrase, speak from the heart, or I love you with all my heart. But when ancient Near Eastern people talked about the heart, they were talking about the core, which can honestly be found in your gut much more than it can be found in your psyche. And each of us know that moment of pain after someone you love dies, after you lose a job, after a devastating diagnosis, after hearing of a friend's betrayal, the pain does not animate in your head. It happens when your gut turns. It happens in your stomach when your core flips upside down. So the idea of fasting is a wholehearted, whole body pleading with God a seeking him with our whole being, our our whole self. Fasting helps to express and to deepen and to confirm the resolution that we are ready to sacrifice anything, to sacrifice ourselves in seeking the kingdom of God. And we're going to talk more about this in the coming weeks, but prayer and fasting is not only asking something of your father, it it is warfare. It is pleading. It is contending. There are opposing forces at work, and if prayer to us is only requesting and never wrestling, we have not grappled with the enemy. What about Esther, right? If you don't know the story of Esther, it's, a, it's really kind of a wild story. It's the book of a, a young Jewish girl who's pretty much an orphan, brought up and raised by her second cousin, Mordecai. Esther's people are a minority living in Persia after the Babylonian Empire, and they are a pers- persecuted people as a minority group. And there's a king named Xerxes, who appoints a man named Haman to be his right-hand man. And Haman wants to destroy Mordecai because he refuses to bow down to Haman. And out of pride, Haman says, great, annihilate every Jew in a single day. So when word gets out, this is going to happen. The scripture says, and in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. 
And as the fateful day of mass genocide is drawing near, Esther tells Mordecai this, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Fasting as a whole body response. Fasting as a whole body prayer. Praying with every part of who you are, not in your head, but with your hunger. Not a manipulation tactic, but a plea to God to act, especially in response to grave evil and suffering. And we see in Joel a kind of fasting that is about turning your body away from sin. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. There's that phrase again. With fasting and weeping and mourning, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Fasting is about repentance. It is about holiness. It is about constraining oneself and one's desire for food to commune with God, to listen to God, to devote oneself to God, to return to God. If there is a word that we need to recapture in the American evangelical experiment, it is repentance. A low view of holiness means a low view of sin, and a low view of sin means a low view of repentance. And a low view of repentance means a low view of grace. But fasting offers us an on-ramp to say to God, I have grieved you. And I am coming back to the throne of grace to receive, and not merely intellectually, but with all that I am. Now, I just gave you a fraction of some examples in the Old Testament, but there's Nehemiah, and there's Hannah, and there's Job, and there's Daniel, and there's Israel's military, and Elijah, and a ton of Old Testament references to fasting. And I'm giving you these examples because I want you to see how much of the scripture we are not really reading, or worse, we are reading and merely ignoring. We cannot say that we are people of the book and only follow parts of the book that we can tolerate or stomach. Excuse the pun. And we cannot say that we trust God revealed in his word if we are not willing to actually engage in some of the practices that that may seem a bit foreign to us. Flip over to the New Testament. Jesus, God the Son, one of the first things we read about in the Gospel of Luke is about Jesus fasting. Luke 4, and Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. We're going to talk much more about this in the coming weeks, but let me say this. If God came to earth, And one of the first things that Luke writes about in his biography of Jesus is the story of him being full of the Spirit and being led by the Spirit too fast. That should mean something to us. 
we might want to ask if this is who God is and if this is what God does and if this is one of the ways that God the Son relates to God the Father empowered with God the Spirit, might we take notice? Anna, the prophetess, the woman in the scripture who we have all but three verses about, and one of those says, she did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Prayer, waiting, hungering, longing, hoping, anticipating, pleading. A practice of what was a contemporary Jewish follower of the Torah, someone who believed Yahweh, someone who we would say now is a Christian, prayed and fasted night and day. It wasn't that she was radical. It was just she took God seriously. The disciples, we see Jesus address this in the Sermon on the Mount. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Note the words, when you fast. The disciples, the followers of Jesus did not fast while Jesus was on earth because the husband, the bridegroom, was with them. But when he ascended to heaven, they would take up fasting again. And it wasn't for show. It was done in secret. It wasn't about performative spirituality. It was about meaningful intimacy. Flip over one book, the early church in Acts 13. There was the church in the city of Antioch. And as part of their rhythms of the church, they worshiped by fasting and praying. And in that rhythm, God spoke to them through the Holy Spirit. Listen to what it says. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the works to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And one of the first great waves of the expansion of the kingdom of God came through Paul, the predominant writer of the New Testament. And it was spurred on by a local church doing strange yet ordinary things like praying and fasting. And in the midst of doing what God was inviting them into, God speaks to them. And Saul and Barnabas are sent out into the world. And they are one of the reasons why we are here now worshiping thousands of years later. That sprung from a handful of believers turning their whole body to God. Still flip over one more chapter, Acts 14, the early church. In seeking the wisdom and insight from the Spirit of God, the leaders of the churches in Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch fasted. It says, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. We are a continuation of the New Testament church. We live in a different country and speak a different language and have some different cultural norms. The spirit that empowered Jesus 2,000 years ago and the spirit that filled the New Testament church is the spirit that is inviting us into deeper intimacy with him and that invitation is a whole body one. John Wesley, who you will hear from multiple times throughout this series, has a probing question and a scathing answer. He asked, why are we not more holy? Why are we not more holy? Mainly because we are looking for the ends without the means. 
we are looking for the ends without the means. I want to be a church that is after holiness, which means we are after the presence of God in our lives that spill over onto our streets. But we will not get there through a magic wand. That is not how God works. We get there by opening ourselves up to God and then pouring ourselves out. We get there through self-denial, not self-gratification. We get there by saying yes to Jesus and saying no to other things. Peter Leithart says the church is a festive community, but unless we are also a fasting community, then we are simply a mirror to the world around us. Fasting is about the presence of God manifesting in our bodies. And fasting is about the holiness of God transforming our attitudes and our thought life and our self-control and our base impulses. And fasting is about the purposes of God, us being with him and becoming like him. And fasting is about starving the flesh, not merely our stomachs, but our false selves and feeding the spirit, the new person that God is raising up and changing. Fasting is about the image bearers of God, standing with the poor and advocating on behalf of those without food. And fasting is about the glory of God, showing that God is more precious than our base appetites. The scripture that Carly read from Romans 12 is not a metaphor. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Notice the tie-in, physical bodies, spiritual worship. They're linked. Your body is sacred, and it is with your body that you worship. That's a revolutionary idea to a world where our bodies are machines for pleasure, for food, for sex, for exercise, and for dopamine release. We are not shells. We are image bearers. Our bodies matter. He goes on, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We will not discern what the will of God is if we do not train ourselves to listen to the voice of God. And that means eliminating distractions and leaning into the groan of our own souls. Let us not be deceived. We have been discipled by so many things. We have been conformed by so many things, and we have been conformed to so many things. You are always being discipled, and you are always being formed by something. News, politics, social media, books you read, education, advertisements, the internet, a mentor, your parents, your peers. If you just got up every day, with no intention or purpose, you would conform to the patterns of the culture, of the city you live in, of the movies you watch, of the sites you visit. That's how it works. We're always being discipled. We're always being formed. So the only way to not be conformed, and even think of the English word con, con meaning with the current of the world. The only way not to be conformed is a type of counterformation or a transformation. Think of the prefix trans, meaning across or beyond, transatlantic, across the Atlantic Ocean, transgender even, across the gender um, spectrum. The, the, the irony in all this, going back to the beginning, 
is that people in our culture, and that includes us, by the way, we're part of the culture, we are enslaved by things thinking that we are free. John Stark is a a pastor, and he has this great, great line. He says, idols are slave traders disguised as abolitionists. Idols are slave traders disguised as abolitionists. Everything is offering us freedom and only giving us chains. It is promising us life and it is killing our souls. I want us to be free people. Free from the attachments, the the idols, the things that so cling to us or the things that we have so clung to. And I think there is a pathway here that God is inviting us into that will help us become free, and it is through fasting. Now, a few caveats for us. A lot of time when you're in the church, you will hear, well, I'm fasting from sugar, or I'm fasting from alcohol, or TV, or social media, or whatever. And listen, those things are good to abstain from, but that's abstaining, not fasting. Abstinence in many forms has a long history in the church. It's something widely underpracticed, and we would do well to consider it and pursue that more. But abstaining from something is not the same thing as fasting from food. There is a different level of ache and hunger that is deeper and more primal than merely withdrawing from entertainment or a certain subset of food. It is altogether a different longing. And because fasting is about praying not merely with your mind, but with your body, and you join in with the rest of creation in Romans 8 that is groaning for God's presence and waiting for God's renewal and interceding for God's kingdom, fasting from food will lead you to that. Fasting is also not about getting something from it, but about becoming someone in it. In his book, Fasting, by uh, Scott McKnight, uh, he talks about how fasting is a response to a sacred moment, not an instrument to get what we want. Meaning, fasting is not you feeling like God's not listening to you, and so you try and manipulate him by saying, I'll try this to see if he hears me. It's actually the opposite. Much less about you manipulating God, much more about God inviting you into a greater sense of his presence. It's not about God hearing you more. It's about you responding to God more. Also, fasting is not about goals. So for those of you who are high achievers in this church, and there are many of you, this isn't something to do to say that I did that. The goal here is not measurable because how do you measure spiritual formation? How do you measure maturity? How do you measure God's presence? It's much more about the means, not the end. Now, there is a lot of grace here. So let the grace stir you to practice, not quit. So when we begin Lent in March and there are days where you feel discouraged and defeated, can I just say that Jesus sees that? And he doesn't look down on you. He is just waiting for you to look up. But let me also say that we're not looking for perfection, just practice. You don't train for a marathon in a week. You don't become a pro in a year. You don't become an expert pianist overnight. Practice. Christianity is actually wired around failure. And that's why there's grace. And grace stirs us to keep leaning in and practicing. I don't want to be a bunch of people who become expert fasters. I want people who are stunned by God's grace 
And when they fail, that makes them lean in more, not less. Now, there is much new to be nuanced here, okay? I, for starters, I am not a female, I'm a male. And one of the great challenges of our culture is that of, the, that of body image as it relates to women. So I've asked a woman to come and speak on that, and that will be happening in this series in a few weeks. But there is great freedom in the midst of doing this. And in the large umbrella of that freedom, I also think there is an invitation to something more. And that is what I want to end with. This is an invitation. It's the same invitation as the one of reading the scriptures, of practicing generosity, of engaging God in prayer, of being embedded in community, of giving your life away to the margins. Nothing about it is easy, but it's good and it's necessary and it's for us to receive more of God's goodness and kindness to us. A lot of times we think God is holding out on us, but it's the other way around. We are withholding ourselves from God, and fasting helps us to break that withholding down. Now, no one is forcing you to do this or coercing you to do this or demanding that you do it. Okay, we as elders and spouses are merely inviting you into it. But let me encourage you, there's been a lot of discussion over the last 10 to 15 years in the church about getting away from legalism, and I affirm that distancing so much But legalism is doing something so that God will love you more, approve of you more, and hate you less. That's what legalism is. That is not what this is. That is not what we're inviting you into. This is engaging in a practice to where you learn to love God more, just like diving into scripture, just like intimacy and prayer, just like confessing your sins around a table. It is not to earn grace. It is to love Jesus and to respond to his quiet, secure voice. And this is a response with your literal body. Because you don't have a body, you are a body. And this is a way to worship God with your body. I want to end with this because this strikes at the heartbeat of fasting that so many of us are afraid to acknowledge and yet realize how true this is. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the prime time dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a spouse. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not the poison of evil, but the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. A hunger for God is typically drowned out with a hunger for other good things, but lesser things. And I want us to enjoy the things of the earth. I do. I don't want us to be a church that sort of separates the sacred and the secular. All of life is sacred. All of life is a gift. We should receive it as such. But I want us to enjoy things, not be enslaved by them. And I want us to enjoy the God of those gifts more. And the first start at hungering for God is to want to hunger for God. In fact, that is the best place to start. A receiving of his grace and a hunger for more. 
Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.